I can't be positive that the story I'm about to tell you is true, but I think it's true for two reasons. First, I've heard it multiple times, and second, it appears on the internet. And those two things satisfy the burden of proof in my book every time, or not. But anyway, here's the story. Story goes that um, a, a woman meets her pastor in the Good Sermon Pastor handshake line following church. And she says to him, Pastor, that sermon was wonderful. So that It was so spot on. Because everything you said applies to someone else that I know. And that is one of those jokes that would be funnier if it wasn't so true. Because you and I have done this. How, how easy is it to sit and listen to a sermon and have thoughts like, oh, I hope so-and-so is listening to that because they can sure use that. Boy, I hope he caught that because he could use a double dose of that. Pastor, could you re- please repeat that for my brother-in-law? The, uh, it's easy to approach the, the Word of God just to see what we can learn that we didn't know or to see what we wish someone else would do differently. But the cold, hard truth about any time in God's Word is that if we don't each individually explore how we can put this to work in our lives, these times in the Word for us can be kind of useless. It's easy to get excited. It's easy to be inspired. But if we don't put into action what we hear, it can make very little impact. Um, A.W. Tozer He wrote this. This is in his book, That Incredible Christian. He said that unused truth becomes as useless as an unused muscle. You ever have a a limb in a cast or in a brace or something where it's immobilized for a period of time? I remember I I had ACL surgery back back in the day when they would immobilize your leg for a long time. I would take that brace off and my lead, you know, my ankle and my hip was the same like diameter the whole way. There's just nothing left there. It's called atrophy. It wastes away. That's what the truth does. Jesus said, you know, sometimes the word gets planted and it gets snatched away or it gets choked out. And each of our hearts can be like that. If we don't put it to use, it doesn't take root. Now, this isn't a new concept. This is a very old concept. And the people in Nehemiah's day, 444 B.C., even way back then, they knew this to be the case. They knew that if uh, during this period of what we would call revival that was breaking out in Jerusalem, they had gone to the Word of God. Nehemiah had drugged them to the Word of God. And they saw what the Word said, how their lives should be, and they were convicted. My life's not like that. 
they realized they had been in the cycle that we talked about last week, right? That cycle that you and I know very well where we slide away from the Lord and we hit some rock bottom of experience and we cry out to the Lord, Lord, I want to come back and he takes us back every single time. Hallelujah. But then these people realize, listen, but if I don't apply something differently, I'm going to be right back where I just came from. What is it? Is it ignorance or insanity that's defined as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result? Here's what these people in Nehemiah's day understood. Spiritual renewal requires tangible application. Lasting spiritual renewal requires tangible application. If you want to find Nehemiah chapter 10 in your Bibles, we're going to, we're going to read that real, real soon, at least some of it. And what this is, what we're going to read, is, is a document that comes out of a church service. We've been studying the church service, a few of them actually, over the last couple of weeks. And, and what happens is these people decide, we're going to write down some stuff we are going to do. Some, some things we're going to do differently so that our next bottom isn't quite so rocky as our last rock bottom was. That's what it is. And this whole chapter will remind us that without personal application, scriptural knowledge can be useless or even destructive. It can puff us up without changing us. Let's read our passage today. It's Nehemiah chapter 10. I'm going to start with the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 9. And we're going to skip the giant list of names that get signed to this document. You can work on pronouncing those babies on your own time, okay? Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 38 and then into verse 10 reads this way in the New American Standard Bible. Now, because of all this, and all this is they've realized they're, they're in that cycle. We've cried out, and he has taken us back again. And because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. And now on the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah, and Sneezy, and Dopey, and Sleepy, and Doc, and everybody else. And we're going to skip all the way down to verse 28. Verse 28. Now, and the rest of the people, so everybody is included, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons and their daughters, and all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and they're taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, And to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord, or Yahweh our God, and His ordinances and His statutes. Verse 30. And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. 
And for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. And we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread and the continual grain offering, and for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. Verse 34. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites and the people, so that they might bring it to the house of, of our God, according to our father's households, at fixed times annually, so that there would be wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. And that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually. And bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, as it is written in the law, for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. And we will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine, the oil, to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground of the Levites, for the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. The priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God and to the chambers of the storehouse. In verse 39, for the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, the oil, to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. And thus, and this is how we will not neglect the house of our God. Okay, what that is that we just read, in a nutshell, what we just read is a giant written vow that all the people of Jerusalem put themselves under that day. It, it's a massive group pinky swear, right? You remember a pinky swear back in the day when you were really serious, right? You would lock pinkies with somebody else and then you make that, this, that's what this is. It's a giant group pinky swear that we're going to do these things that we lay out. What we're told in verse 29 is that they enter into, they take on themselves an oath, a, a curse and an oath. And what that meant is they were swearing, they were taking a vow before God that went like this. God, I'm gonna, we're going to do these things. I'm going to do these things. Where I do them, you bless me. I get some benefit. And when I fail at these I earn the curse. I'll be under your curse. That's what this was. That sounds very serious to us. And I'll tell you in a minute, we're not going to be doing this today. So relax. All right, everybody take a deep breath. I'm not going to have to take this vow. I want you to know before we go on that this is, this is what living under the law was. They didn't have to take this vow. They lived under the law. This is, what they, this is how they lived. This was the spiritual economy, blessing and curse based on their obedience to the rules. We could go back into the Pentateuch, the first part of the Old Testament, when the law was instituted. They had a giant ceremony where everybody took a vow. We're going to do this. 
Where we obey, you bless us. Where we disobey, we understand you'll curse us. That's the way the law worked. I won't be asking you to take a vow this morning. (laughs) In fact, Jesus would not like it if I did ask you to do that. The next book we study, here in a few weeks, we're going to switch to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus is going to teach us in Matthew 5 not to take vows like this. He's just going to say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And we'll talk about that in probably a few months by the time we get there. But we don't enter into vows of blessing and cursing anymore because our moral economy has changed. And here's what I mean by that. Does God still care about your obedience? Yes or no? Yes. Does he still care about you obeying his moral law? Yes. Are you cursed when you disobey the moral law? How about this? Do you earn a curse when you disobey moral law? The answer to that is yes. We earn the curse with every sin. But our, our spiritual economy has changed. Paul told us this way. This is one of my favorite verses. Galatians 3.16 says, excuse me, 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's almost like, or it is like, so okay, God, we know what you expect. And where we disobey, we earn a curse. And he says, and I, but I've already, I've already swallowed your curse. I disobeyed. He got cursed. How awesome is that? That's the gospel. There is a curse. We just don't feel it. He took it on our behalf. So today, if I, you know, at the conclusion of this sermon, I said, all right, we're all going to stand up and raise our right hand and place our hand on the Bible and promise to do better and be good, or you curse us, Lord, that would be an affront to the cross. It would be anti-gospel. I'm going to do better, or you fry me. You get me. You give the lay the smack down. That's, that's anti-gospel. Because he became the curse for us. But what we can emulate from these people in Nehemiah chapter 10, what we should follow from what they did is is we need to see how serious they were about applying the scriptures to their lives. That is admirable. We talked about this last week in that cycle that we've all been in. Sin still has consequences even though the curse is no longer one of them, correct? Um, God still disciplines those he loves. Praise God. When God disciplines you for your sin, it is not a curse. It is not punitive punishment. It's love. In the same way, when, when my kids got their hands close to the electrical outlet 
What did I say? Oh, I love you, so you can do whatever you want. Go ahead and stick your tongue in that bad boy if you want to. That'll be fun. No, because I love them, I made sure and let them know that was unacceptable. Sometimes God has loved me in my life so much that he busted me in my sin. And sometimes I feel like when God's at his angriest, he says, go ahead. Go ahead. Chase that. But God still, sometimes negative consequences of sin is God's discipline. Sometimes negative consequences of our sin is just the results in our lives. I know we go around the room and take examples. We all have examples of stuff that has happened in our lives. It's It's just what I call the residual results of the fall. This is a broken world right? They bring the guy to Jesus. Jesus, this guy's blind. Who sinned, him or his parents? Whose fault is this? And Jesus like, the world's broke, boys, right? And we, had, we felt that kind of brokenness. But we could also go around the room and give a lot more examples of our lives being a mess just because we haven't applied the scriptures to our lives. Because we're a rebellious and stiff-necked people. And the calamity that results and the evil for evil that's in our relationships and the, 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 just the bitterness and the strife and the jealousy and the envy. Usually it's because we and those around us aren't applying the scripture to our lives. So these people today, they make a list of some things and they say, we're going to start doing these things. They understand spiritual renewal requires practical application. All right. So that's what they vow. We're going to start doing some things. And it is really interesting where they start. When they're going to make a list of the things they are going to do, because they're going to start applying these scriptures to their lives and try to get out of that constant, uh, deep dive, rock bottom, help me God, and here we are again. We're going to make some change. It's really interesting and instructive where they start. The first thing they say they're going to do differently is they say, we're not going to marry non-Jews anymore. We're not going to let our kids... They arrange their marriages. So basically, we're not going to arrange marriages for our kids and and non-Jews. Now that sounds discriminatory to our modern ears and old-fashioned and maybe racist. And if we're not real careful, we can come out with a really some really bad applications of this. Okay. Right, because these people said, all right, first thing we're going to do, we're going to ha- stop having our kids marry non-Jews. If someone reads that and goes, you see, that's why my kids are only dating white folks. That's a gross perversion of God's heart in this passage. Let me explain why this was so important for them and so we can get a clear understanding of how we can apply this uh, to our lives. All right, here's why this was so important for these folks. 444 BC, there's, they, these people in Jerusalem, if they're a tiny remnant, all that's left of the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. 
and from where the nation has come. There's not that many of them left. And the promise, we talked about this last week. In Genesis 12, God showed up to Abraham and said, Abraham, because you believe me, I'm going to build a great nation out of you. I'm going to give that nation a land, and I'm going to bless the whole world through your family. And we, we, I showed you last week how the main, the blessing is, I'm going to bring, God said, the curse, the curse reversing, serpent crushing, descendant of Eve out of this family. And as Israel was dedicated to God's promises, they had to remain distinct because they were the vessel God would bring the Messiah through. And when Israel wasn't on all in on that promise, where they often got themselves in trouble, is they did things that took away the distinctness of Israel. You want to know why the, the, uh, the enslavement in Egypt happened? Jacob's kids, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their kids were more wicked than the Canaanites when they lived in Canaan. Left to their own, they would have just intermarried and just been dispersed and there wouldn't have been Israel anymore. You understand that there aren't that many societies alive today that are that ancient, right? Israel's really, really old. Most of them just intermarried, right? And God said, listen, I promised your great, 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 great granddaddy that he would have a distinct nation forever. And so, and you chowderheads are going to mess that up if I leave this to you. So I'm going to pick you up out of the promised land, take you in Egypt where everyone hates you, and no one would marry you because they think you're disgusting. And then Egypt grows, in, or excuse me, Israel grows into a great nation in, in Egypt because no one else will marry them. And then God can take them back and transplant. All right. These people, because of more discipline of God, more things they've done wrong. These are all the people that is left. And they look around and go, listen, we have to take our job seriously as being the vessel, God's vessel of blessing for the entire world. And if we're going to be serious about applying the scriptures to our lives, we can't let our kids marry people who aren't serious about applying these scriptures to their lives. Listen, in the ancient world, Israel was weird. God made Israel be weird. You ever read the food laws? You didn't read them without thinking, well, that's weird. Right? So I can have fish with scales, but I can't have fish without scales. How come? Um, The Sabbath laws were weird. Uh, Circumcision was weird. And non-Jews who converted and were sold out to worshiping Yahweh as their only God, they were always welcome marriage material. But when Israel just said, hey, you know what, I, I can, I'm going to marry this person, even though, you know, they worship Molech or something. I mean, it'll all work out. We'll get married. It'll be good. And they get married. And somebody goes, now, I mean, tell me again why I can't eat a ham sandwich. I mean, seriously, I got a hankering for some pork. Tell me again why we give so much money to the temple of just this one God. Right? And don't even get me started on trying to convince someone in that primitive medical environment that circumcision would have been a good idea. 
It just it doesn't work. And so when someone married someone who wasn't committed to following Yahweh and it was just one more family that walked, and their job is to be distinct so that there's a vessel for Messiah. All right. Our separateness from the world has to look different than this. It's because the church, in the church age where we're at, we are not a, an ethnically um, you know, distinct group, homogenous group that's waiting for Messiah to be brought through us. The church is the most ethnically diverse thing on earth that knows who the Messiah is. And we're charged to take that good news everywhere. So it's different. But here's where it's similar. The reason these guys said we're only going to marry Jews is because we are going to apply the scriptures to our lives. And this truth remains. It gets real hard to apply the scripture to your life when you are tied together, yoked together in life with someone who has no interest in applying the scriptures to their lives. Would you agree with this? It's hard enough to apply the scriptures to your life when you're just when you're doing life with someone who has the same priority. This is why young people, preachers like me and hopefully parents like yours, desire that you not like date somebody that doesn't care about the Bible or Jesus. Because they don't want you to marry somebody like that. It's not just marriage. This is why we don't go, we don't be business partners with somebody who just doesn't care to do things according to the scriptures. It's not superiority. You're no better than them. It's just hard enough when you're partnered with somebody who, who, who wants, who desires to apply th- the scriptures to their lives as well. That's just, it's really interesting why they start here. We're going to start doing the scriptures. Step one, we're going to stop marrying people who don't want to do the scriptures. Here's our New Testament application. This is just before Jesus' arrest. He prayed this. This is a prayer for his disciples. And Jesus says, Father, I have given them, that's his disciples, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world just like I don't belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm asking that you keep them safe from the evil one while they're in the world. Verse 16, they do not belong to the world just like I don't belong to the world. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is the truth. See that? Applying the scriptures to their lives. He says, just like you sent me into the world, I, I send them. And this is where that old saying, being in the world but not of the world, comes from. I, I always picture this. This is my illustration for this. You've heard this before. I picture in the world, not of the world, like standing on the top of a steep hill. And, and on this side of the hill, down that slope is the world. And on this side is just like isolation. I don't even want to call it the church. Um, but if I step too far away from the world, I, I have no impact. I'm not in the world. I'm not doing. I'm not taking the good news where it's supposed to go. But the other risk is to just be 
to fall off this side of the hill and just yoke and tie myself to the world. I cannot walk with someone who's not applying the scriptures to their lives and walk and apply the scriptures to my life at the same time. I just can't. And so the, the, the goal is to be involved in the lives of people who don't apply the scriptures to their lives, who don't know Jesus and don't like Jesus. But the goal is to help them come to know him, right? And, and trying to use marriage or being BFFs or being business partners in the hope that they will change their mind someday is just something historically that's never worked. Okay, that was first thing. The rest of them aren't as long, I promise. Second thing they write down, they are going to do in verse 31. I sum this up this way. We're going we're gonna to do some some things the scriptures tell us to do. We're going to apply the things in our lives. And these things are really hard. They're really costly. And they take big faith. Verse 31 says, we're not going to buy on the Sabbath or on a holy day from the neighboring peoples who bring their wares and all kinds of stuff to sell. And we're going to let the fields lie fallow every seventh year. And we will cancel every loan. Here's what they were promising to do in a nutshell. Here's what they wrote down, signed their name to, and vowed, said, God, you can curse me if I don't do this. We agree to let people who aren't interested in the scriptures have a financial advantage over us. We're going to be okay with that. God, if you say, I want the pagan next door to make more money than me, I'm going to be okay with that. That's what this says. And I want you to know how much faith this would have taken. First, we'll start with kind of the easy one. On Saturday, because it's a Sabbath and we're not supposed to buy and sell, all the other people come and they open their stores, God, and we're not going to open our store. I'm going to watch all that money go back and forth. And I'm staying out of it. But here's the big one. The, we'll let our, the fields be fallow every seventh year. The law said every seventh year you don't farm. God says, and you just trust me to take care of you without farming for an entire year. You know how much faith that would have taken? A lot. Now, good news. There's no direct correlation for us. Farmers, I'm not going to tell you, you can't farm every seventh year. Although if you had to take one off, this is probably the year to do it. I'm just saying, it doesn't look great. But, um, the, the Sabbath laws is a story for a different sermon. The Sabbath laws, Jesus changed, they're, they're changed for us. This, I, this is not a direct correlation. I'm not saying you can't have your store open or something on a certain day of the week. All I'm saying is, what we can learn from these guys is they've been in that cycle of they keep walking from the Lord and crying out and they takes me back and here I go again. And they say, you know what, enough is enough. I'm going to start doing the ones that are hard. I'm going to start doing the stuff that's scary and takes lots of faith. Because their tendency was the same as ours. The tendency for the modern Christian, very similar to the tendency of the ancient Jew, and that's this. I am all for being obedient to God. I am all for being a good person. I'm all for applying the scriptures unless it hurts my finances 
my popularity, my fun, my impressiveness, my excitement. They write down, they write down the big one. They write down the hard ones and say, we are doing this because we're tired of that cycle. It's a costly kind of obedience. You know, if, if you never do anything in your faith walk that seems scary or costly, like if you can't think of the last time you did something that made you nervous to do it, or that felt like, gosh, God, you're really going to have to come through. I, I, I'm thinking how to say this best. But I, I would really encourage you to ask yourself, just in your heart, like, what do I really trust and hope in? What do I depend on for my purpose in life? If, what others think of me? The amount of money I have, my career, success of some kind. And I will tell you this, you will, you will, you've never known joy like doing something that takes so much faith. It's like, God, if you don't come through here, like I don't know what's going to happen. And watching God do for you what you cannot do for yourself is a faith-building experience all of its own, unlike anything else. We're just so comfortable here. It's so easy here. We're on the big faith thing in a second. The rest, and I'll go quickly here, that most of the rest of this passage is the people do something interesting. They take a personal vow to take personal responsibility for the finances of God's house. The house of the Lord shows up, it's like seven times in these verses. And it goes through all kinds of different uh, offerings they're going to they're gonna give for different ministries of the temple. And they play, verse 32, they place themselves under personal obligation for the finances um, of the church. They, uh, I don't want to bog down on this too much. I'll just say this. They, they promise to bring their first fruits. They're going to bring their first Instead of saying, we're going to harvest and whatever, if we have something left over at the end of the year, Lord, we'll bring that. No, they, de- they we write down, we're bringing first out of our crops. Um, just lots of financial responsibility. Personal responsibility for God's house has always been a part of God's heart. And I had a whole bunch more listed about that, but I think I'll, I'll skip that for for now by way of conclusion here I want to share with you what I thought was the most interesting verse when I studied this passage because here's what I don't want I don't want to send you out of here thinking the main idea of this sermon is I've got to imply I've got to start applying the whole scripture right now Um, I've got to do all the hard ones I've got to change everything I mean, that'd be great. And whatever the Lord's calling you to do, do. But I want to show you, let me just explain this verse and then we'll talk about it. Verse 34, I thought was really interesting. It's tucked in the middle of the financial accountability stuff. Here's what it says. We we cast lots, we drew straws, basically. 
concerning wood offerings. Here's what they said. I'll just tell you what this means. They drew straws to see what time of the year each family would bring firewood to the temple to keep the fire of, of the altar burning. Here's why this caught my eye. There is nothing in the Old Testament law. Trust me, I've read it. It's not in there. There's nothing in the Old Testament law that said people had to bring firewood to the temple. It's just not there. Now, the law did say that fire can't go out. And so they take personal responsibility to keep that fire going. And here's why I think that's awesome. This was an impoverished time. In fact, there's one personal financial thing that I left out. If you look at that shekel, one-third shekel tax, they all agreed. If we look back in the law, that's been reduced from what the law said. It used to be half a shekel, which is more than a third. Go math. Um, they reduced it because of their financial conditions. Not everybody could bring bulls. Not everybody could bring lambs, two lambs sacrificed every single day. Not everybody could bring those things, but everybody could gather sticks for the Lord. And they, and they did this, and it was an acceptable act of worship. They applied the scriptures to, hey, the scriptures say that fire is not going to go out. I'm going to get me some wood. I'm going to bring that so God's fire keeps burning. I'm going to find something I can apply, and I'm going to apply it. Now, here's why I think that's so cool. Because of something that's in our culture. Here's something I am convinced that keeps us, Southwest Nebraska, Chase County, us, specifically America in general, the West probably in general, that keeps us from starting to apply the scriptures to our lives. We value what is awesome. We value what is impressive. We value what other people see as being something. And you know this, right? I don't want to be on the team. I want to be the best on the team. I don't want to, now I'm all league. I don't, now I want to be all state. I don't just want a car. I want a king cab turbo diesel tricked out spinning rims make my friends jealous. Right? Why? Because people think, people think it's impressive. That's what I want. And we give lots of examples of that. But listen, that seeps into the church. Here's how. I can't, I can't start a little Bible study because probably not very many people come. Maybe the cool kids won't show up. I can't go ask somebody if they want to see what's in this book and see how we can apply it to our lives. They might say no. I can't start giving. What, I don't have enough. I can't give significantly. My... I may do my best and nobody will be impressed because here's what our culture says. If you're not impressive, you're nothing. Our culture preaches at us, go big or go home. I want you to know what God says to us. Sometimes instead of go big or go home, sometimes God just says, just go home. 
Get busy ministering where I wanted you to minister. Or start small and invite someone into your home. God, God does not see our acts of worship and service the way people do. God is not impressed by the things that people are impressed by. Jesus said this. This is Luke 16, 15. Listen to this and take heart. Or take it to heart. What is highly prized among men is utterly detestable in God's sight. What is highly prized among men is utterly detestable in God's sight. See, to us, small means worthless. Not to God. God said, you want to be great? Be small. Be a servant. Nobody will be impressed by that. God says, I will. Who are you trying to impress anyway? In a contemporary example, I love this verse. Um, long story, very short, preacher, you can do this. All right, uh, when the people came back from captivity, the, the Babylonians had destroyed this magnificent temple, Solomon's temple, and God said, I want you to rebuild the temple, and they rebuilt the temple. Does anybody remember what people did when they first rebuilt the temple? Old people that had seen the old temple looked at their new temple and they mourned and they cried because look at this lousy temple. And listen to what God said. This is Zechariah 4.10. Who dares make light of small beginnings? Who Write this on your heart today, this week. Who dares make light of small beginnings? They cried at this temple and God said, whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you crying about this temple? It's not impressive to you. It's not impressive to other people. Who'd you build it for? You used what you had, what I gave you to my glory, and that thing is awesome to me. Who dares make light of small beginnings? By way of conclusion, I, it's insane and ignorant for us to continue to do the same things over and over and over again and expect a different result. But sometimes we don't do anything because we think it won't be awesome looking. It won't be impressive. The only, I think the only effort for God that he's not impressed by is the one that is not undertaken, that's not made, because I'm going to wait till I can have more and do more and more people will come. And Who dares make light of small beginnings? Now, the Lord might be putting something big on your heart because these people wrote down the big things too. The Lord might be putting something small on your heart, but it won't be small to Him. I would love to be able to tell you, here's what you should do, but I ain't God. I don't know if you've noticed. I'm a lousy Holy Spirit. But if you, if you look for something that you can apply... Maybe it's personal study time. I haven't had a quiet time in years or months. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's to go find somebody, somebody that I go to church with. I want to try to apply some of this to my life. Will you come with me? And you know what will happen? Your heart will be beating fast. Your palms will be sweaty. You'll think, man, I don't want to do this. They might say no. And God says, you're doing it right. 
I don't know what it is that he would have you apply, but there is something. And I know this, spiritual renewal, if that's what you want, you want to feel closer to the Lord, you want to walk closer, if that's what you want, lasting spiritual renewal requires tangible application. And as I pray for renewal in our, in our church, in our county, and in your life, I just want you to know this morning, there's something you've got to apply for that to last. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, you have done everything it took to establish a relationship with us. You have taken the curse upon yourself. And God, we want to walk with you as redeemed people. And so for just a minute, I just want to pray on behalf of, of my friends and family here. I want to pray that you would speak in your Holy Spirit to people right now, Lord, into their hearts, that they might begin to think, understand what you would have them apply. Maybe a small thing seemingly to them that might grow. Lord, uh, you, you showed me in a devotional last week that, uh, you know, Small steps of service are not steps to greatness. They are greatness. Lord, just small things we could apply. Maybe you're speaking to someone a big thing that they need to change. But Lord, as I'm quiet, I just pray that you would speak into the hearts of my friends and family what you might ask them to apply this day. Father, I thank you that our ability to avoid the curse does not depend on our ability to follow through on what you just put on our hearts. But God, uh, give us the courage, the strength, the guts, and the faith to begin to apply the scriptures to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.